Well, if you would, um, go ahead. If, if you don't have your own Bible, we have a pew Bible for you there. We're in 1 Peter. Today we're looking at chapter 4, verses 7 through 14. That's our text. It's on page 1016, 1016 in your Bibles there. Well, we're almost finished with our summer sermon series on 1 Peter. The series is titled Hope in a Hostile World. We have one more message after today. Now, today's sermon addresses the 800-pound gorilla in the room. By now, in Peter's letter, his readers, and us included, should be thinking, yes, this is all good, but seriously, how are we going to be able to do this? How can we live as loving, merciful priesthood uh, in this hurtful and hostile world? How can we pursue righteousness and suffer persecution and rejoice? This is not humanly possible. Have you felt the tension? How are we going to bring glory to our Savior Jesus Christ when we know how weak we are? Isn't this right, Christian? Don't you find in you a strong desire to bear fruit for Christ and also a sense of inadequacy? Now check this out. Peter, of all people, he knows this. He knows what it's like to confidently say to Jesus on the night he was betrayed, Lord, I will die with you if need be. But then just a few hours later, when Jesus was being arrested, he, Peter fearfully told a small girl, I do not know the man. In order to live out the life Jesus called Peter to live, Peter needed something else from Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church is God's solution to the 800-pound gorilla in the room. The spirit of Christ that came to dwell in Peter changed everything for Peter. And it changes everything for us too. How so? Well, let's read. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 14. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, 
If we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word for us. It's a comforting word. It's a word that shows us that, that your power uh, dwells in us, and it has a wonderful, powerful effect. May we walk in it today and every day to come. Help us to understand what it means that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us, we pray. Amen. I can't put my finger on it. Have you ever said that? The idiom, I can't put my finger on it, came from the late 1800s. The expression calls to mind uh, the image of looking through a document and literally placing one's finger on the words that will support one's assertion. Often the phrase can be used in the negative, as in, I can't put my finger on it. It's meant to identify that we cannot um, remember something, slips our mind, we're not sure where we heard of it. Often this applies to me when I'm watching a movie. Some actor looks familiar. You ever done this? I know I've seen that person before. Isn't that the guy who played the guy in that one movie? You know, the one with the, the aliens in it. When it comes to identifying an actor in a show, not being able to put your finger on it isn't a big deal. But when it comes to the biggest issues that we humans must address, being able to put your finger on it means everything. Questions like, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? What constitutes a life well-lived? What is this world all about? Think about those questions. Can you, can you put a finger on the answer? If a friend or a coworker or a child asks you, what is life all about? What would you say? Can you confidently put your finger on the answer? You know, the last thing we should ever want to do is, is live a life contrary to the true purpose of life. And so are you ready? What's this world all about? Why is there something and not nothing? Why does this universe exist with us in it? And why is this universe so incredibly massive and yet we live on this small, tiny blue planet? What's it all about? You ready for the answer? It's one word. Glory. Glory. This universe exists to display God's glory. This is God's universe. It's his marvelous creation. And my friends, you and I are just creatures in it, created by God for God's glory. The problem is we've lost our way, have we not? As the Apostle Paul wrote in that first chapter of the book of Romans, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That's mankind's problem. God is absolutely glorious and good but we've turned our gaze from God and heaven to ourselves. Think about it. If, 
If sin is ultimately to live in the creator's world as if the creator doesn't exist, well, then we're all guilty. Or as Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. There it is again, that word. And so here's the problem that all the world lives under. We're all born with lives that are turned in on ourselves instead of living for God. as God has made us to live, instead of reflecting God's glorious image into this world, we tend to live for our own glory. And you know, sadly, we don't even think anything's wrong with that. We can't quite put our fingers on it, but we know we were made for a greater purpose. We know deep inside that we're glorious creatures who shouldn't be wasting our lives, but we can't quite put our fingers on what is wrong. Thankfully, God knows all this. And he's not left us to grope in the dark. God is actively working to remedy this problem. And how does he do this? The spirit of glory. Our passage ends with this amazing statement, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Oh, that we were just to meditate on that for a week. What we'll see this morning is, is that we are actually able to powerfully pursue God's calling upon us in our lives because the spirit of glory rests on us. We'll look at this under two headings, the goodness of glory and the work of glory. First, the goodness of glory. You know, this word glory appears three times in our text in just Eight verses. The primary goal of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the glory of God in the people of God. And this is a truth we must delight in. Now try to wrap your head around this challenging truth. What is God most happy about? What is at the center of all his attention? What is the deepest passion in the life of God? The answer, himself. God's glory is at the center of God's attention. Everything God does is for his glory. Why did God create the universe? For his glory. Why did God allow Adam to be tempted? For his glory. Why did God send Moses to redeem his people out of Egypt for his glory? Why did God send his son to die on a cross to redeem a people for himself for his glory? And why is the Holy Spirit active on this earth and in God's people for God's glory? Now, at first glance, we hear this and we think, <laughs> that cannot be. Like, is God full of himself? It's like he conceded, like, you know. The answer is no, not at all. Yes, while it's true, yes, it's repugnant when we human beings boast of our greatness and live for our own glory. It's not so with God. Consider this argument. If God is the highest being in the universe, in other words, if there is nothing in the universe that rivals his greatness and his glory, then should he not delight in himself? above all things? 
Or think of it another way. If God does not find his utmost happiness in the radiance of his own glory, then that means there must be some other greater glory that is worthy of God's delight. And that means that God must not be the ultimate in the universe. But there is no greater glory in existence. So God is right to dwell on, to seek his own glory. Does this make sense? Listen, God created us for his glory. The glory of God is what we need to put our fingers upon. All meaning and purpose and happiness hinges upon it. Life is wasted when we do not live with our fingers upon the glory of God. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The spirit of glory was sent by the Father and the Son to work upon us and in us, to cause us to put the fingers of our lives back upon the glory of God, to redirect our lives, to refocus, to recenter us. And this is a work of God's grace towards us. Let me ask you, has the grace and the glory of God captivated you? Have you given up on the charade of making a name for yourself apart from God? As imperfect as you are, do you yet long for Christ to be glorified in your earthly body? If so, it is because the spirit of glory rests upon you. That's the goodness of glory. Now for the work of glory. My friends, the work of the Holy Spirit is to magnify and manifest the glory of the Father and the Son in the lives of God's people. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room that last night with them that, that he told them, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he will be with you and he will be in you. And then he said this, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Listen, you will misunderstand the Holy Spirit if you don't get this right. The Holy Spirit does not glorify himself. He lives to glorify the Father and the Son. Too many Christians are on the lookout for the Spirit. Oh, the Spirit was really present today. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with delighting in the work of the Holy Spirit. We should, we must. And we must long for the Spirit to be present. But we begin acting in unbiblical ways when we're constantly looking for the Holy Spirit. Understand this, the role of the Holy Spirit is not to draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit is like a floodlight shining on a, on a sign outside at night. Without the floodlight focused upon the sign, you cannot read the sign or understand it. So to the Holy Spirit and Jesus. The Holy Spirit's role within the Trinity is to spotlight the glory of Jesus to us. Now, the Spirit of glory doesn't just floodlight Jesus to us. He also floodlights Jesus into us. In our text, Peter shows us how we display the glory of God. It is a work of the spirit of glory 
and of God as, as he rests upon us. Earlier, Eva read from Galatians chapter 5. There, Paul shows us the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then Paul concluded, if we live by the Spirit, that is, if, if we come to faith, if we have this new spiritual birth by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The same spirit that gave you spiritual life in Christ Jesus will produce beautiful spiritual fruit in you as you keep in step with the spirit. Verses 7 through 11 speak of this work of the Holy Spirit in us. First, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled. That's the last on that list of the fruit. And sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus is returning someday, perhaps soon. So therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, be alert. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. You no longer chase after vain, worldly passions, but you take serious your calling and you're watchful. Peter suggests that the more attuned we are to the actual return of Jesus Christ, the more serious and watchful our lives will be. And all of this ends or leads to plentiful and powerful prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. What a great promise. Jesus left his glory in heaven to come down to earth to redeem you and me. Jesus lived the God-honoring God life that you and I should have lived. He died the death that you and I deserve so that we may be redeemed and forgiven, all to the glory of God. And this glory will one day be revealed when he returns. That's what we see at the end of verse 13, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This points to the return of Christ when he comes to judge and restore this hurtful and hostile world and call us to be with him in eternal glory on this renewed earth. The spirit-filled life, there she is, there you go. The spirit-filled life is further described in verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins. Love is the first characteristic in that spirit-filled life of the fruit of the spirit that we read earlier. It begins love, joy, peace, patience. The spirit of glory works in God's people, first and foremost, to make us what? Loving like our Lord, Jesus Christ. And like Christ, our love for others covers a multitude of sin. How so? Well, John Stott observes that, listen, here's what he says. We do not love others if we take delight in finding and exposing their faults and sins. Rather, love covers a multitude of sins. Christians, whenever you criticize or talk bad about others behind their backs, you're not covering their sins in love. You're, in fact, multiplying them. But when the Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you, you are able to love and forgive others. 
so that you don't just keep your mouth shut, but you actually love all people and desire to show them the mercy and the forgiveness that God has shown you always. My friends, this is how love covers a multitude of sins. Then Peter addresses the importance of hospitality. Seems like a weird topic. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. First, without grumbling. You know, there's a lot of things that Scripture shows us are good, things that we are to do, serve our neighbors, care for each other, right? But we can do it with grumbling, can't we? When we do some Christ-like act, but we don't do it with Christ-like motives and instead grumble, it is not a good thing. It's not a good act. It's not a God-honoring or glorifying way of going about it. So, instead of grumbling, allow the Spirit of God to challenge you, to help you to love other people, and we show hospitality and do other things without grumbling. With regards to hospitality, all Christians are to be hospitable. That is, to open up their homes and be warm and generous for the benefit of others. You know, hospitality is how evangelism was done in the early churches. And hospitality is how early churches, they met in worship. And it remains a powerful witness today when we open up our homes and show this hostile world what beautiful hospitality in the name of Christ looks like. Maybe you're thinking, you know, my apartment is, uh, it's tiny. And it's decorated with leftovers from my college days. And there's Kool-Aid stains on the carpet. Listen, hospitality isn't about the abundance of nice possessions. It's rather about the abundance of love in, in your heart towards others. And so the question before you isn't whether you have a small or large home, but are you hospitable? And not just to your best friends, right? It's easy to invite those whom you love and you easily get along with. What about others? Are you, because of your love for Christ, actively opening your home so that others may be blessed? You know, this last week, I asked uh, Adriana to help find a, a home for a guest preacher who's coming in August with his family. And I asked her to start by asking the elders. See, one of the qualifications for being an elder is that they're hospitable. You know, I was, I was impressed. Like, within an hour, like, one of our elders stepped up and said, sure, we're, we're happy to host this pastor and family. By the way, we have a couple more pastors coming. So if somebody wants to be hospitable, <laughs> next month all you got to do is just grab me or Adrian and say, hey, we're available. Our home is open. Uh, we might need to cover up the Kool-Aid stains, but we're happy uh, to open our home. So let Peter's words challenge you. Don't be a grumbler with regards to hospitality. Delight in being hospitable. Why? Listen, for your Father in heaven is hospitable. In his home in heaven, there are many rooms, just as Jesus said. And he went there to prepare a place for you. Our heavenly Father is hospitable. And thankfully, he doesn't do it with grumbling. Peter speaks more directly concerning spiritual gifts in verse 10. As each has received a gift, a spiritual gift, 
use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Let me very grace. Let me just make a couple quick points. First, each of you, if you're in Christ, has a spiritual gift, at least one, if not more. The spirit of glory has given you new life, and he has also given you uh, a new spiritual ability. Secondly, we use our gifts to serve one another. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. God has given you gifts not for your own benefit and glory, for your own hoarding, but for others' benefit and God's glory. Thirdly, we're to be good stewards of our God-given gifts. Verse 10, use it to serve one another as good stewards. Now, often we think of, when we hear the word stewardship, we think of, of uh, how we care for the financial gifts that God gives us. We steward them. But we also have a calling to steward our spiritual gifts. What does that mean? Well, it means we identify them. We figure out what gifts God has given us. We, we develop them. We put them to use. And we rejoice at the end of the day when God has used our gifts. Lastly, we're to know that each has different gifts. So we can't compare ourselves with each other or feel bad that we're not like so-and-so. Verse 10, as good stewards of God's varied grace. God's grace varies to all his children. Some are graced with spiritual gifts of speaking or teaching or helping or others gifted with mercy or leadership or administration. You get the point. And the point is that each of us has varying gifts, different gifts. So let us acknowledge that and let us delight in how God has gifted others. Next, it's important to understand two truths revealed in this text. One is this, God is the one who empowers you, and two, it's for God's glory. Verse 11 tells us, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves how? By the strength that God supplies, in order that every, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter ends with the word amen. Amen means it is good. It is true. It's a call for us to unite our hearts in delightful agreement with what we've just read. Peter says that we serve by the strength that God supplies. Listen, God supplies the strength. All the work that God calls us to do in this short letter, plus everything else in Scripture, including living as kingdom of priests, being merciful, not returning evil for evil, pursuing righteousness, rejoicing when we're persecuted. For all this daunting work and more, God supplies the strength. Listen, all the work that God has called you to do, he also provides all the power for you to do it. You simply access this by faith. As you think that through, how does that challenge and encourage you this morning? Can you see why Peter says amen? Now, Peter moves along, and he shows us that not only does God supply the power, but he also gets the glory. And if you think about it, that kind of makes perfect sense, right? As the one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified. God provides the strength. God gets all the glory. You know, something that can happen to church planters like me is that we 
We begin our church plants with lots of prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Holy Spirit, work in me. May this be a powerful work for your glory, God. But if we're not careful, if we're not sober-minded, if we're not watchful, we can start taking God for granted and his power and his strength. We can begin to kind of take the credit for the work that God is doing. Look at my church. Look at how my church is growing. One way I fought against this is to never use the word my church. Pastors often ask when we're all gathered together, how are things going at your church? I try to reply, our church is going well. Really, it's Christ's church. You know, in about 10 years, I won't be your pastor here. I will age out. Yeah, I know. I'm 57. So some of you are like 57. Yeah. I will age out. And you will prayerfully seek a replacement for me. This is because Grace Presbyterian Church is not my church. It's Christ's church. It exists for his glory, not mine, not yours. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Peter returns to the topic of churches suffering persecution for the sake of the gospel. See, no matter how powerfully the Spirit works in us for God's glory, God's people will experience trials of persecution. The difference in this instant that Peter now focused upon is, is that now we see how the Holy Spirit works in us during these times. Verses 12 through 14, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. Hey, where did that come from? Why am I going through this? Oh, my gosh. Um, as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> but instead rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because, here it is, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Beloved, don't be surprised. Where did that come from? When trials and persecutions because you love Jesus come your way. Instead, rejoice, be glad. Again, as Jesus suffered for God's glory and our benefit, remember, he rejoiced over it all. So too, we get to live for Christ and suffer as the Lord did, and we get to rejoice. To be insulted for the name of Christ, there could be no greater reason for you to rejoice. Seems odd, but why is this? Think about it. If you're being persecuted for Christ, then this means what? That your persecutors, when they look at you, they see Christ in you. Which Paul elsewhere says, the hope of glory, Christ in you. 
Let it sink in. If your desire, and I think it is if you're a Christian, is that the Holy Spirit would transform you so that Christ is formed in you. Then when people insult you, what does this mean? It means that as they see you, they also see Christ in you. Peter's argument goes like this. If you love Christ and long for the spirit of glory to make you more like Christ, then when people persecute you because you are like Christ, rejoice. What you wish for is true, Christ in you. Problem is, it just comes with persecution. When people persecute you for his name, it is a great sign that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do you see why we can rejoice? Wait, you, you take offense that, that I'm a Christian? Oh, beautiful. Christ in me. You must see Jesus in me. How can I love you more? What can I do to help you? This is the blessing that Peter keeps referring to. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I'm afraid I don't have too much more to say. If this is true, and it is for all who trust in Christ, then you and I are truly blessed in every way. Before Christ came into your life, you could not put your finger on life's glorious purpose. But now, as Peter says, the, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But check this out, Christian. This is because God's finger is upon you in love and in mercy and in tenderness. In eternity past, God said, you, 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 I'm going to put my finger on you. You're going to be my child. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to pour my spirit on you. You're going to come to have faith in Christ. Yes, you're going to be persecuted, but you belong to me. And that changes everything. Christian, God's finger is upon you by his grace and his grace alone. We have been made new creatures. Creatures who now have our fingers upon the goodness and glory of God. Yes, it's true. We lament how poorly we live for God and for his glory. But it's also true, right? We genuinely hunger and thirst for the glory of God to have its way in us. Both those things are true. The spirit of glory works upon us and in us to cause us to place the fingers of our lives back upon the glory of God. And life cannot get any better than that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need a reminder um, that this life is far more than just chasing after enjoyment, life's momentary pleasures. Life is about you and your glory, everything. And so we thank you that you reminded us of this. We're thankful that you um, haven't just forgiven our sins in Christ, but by your spirit, um, you have placed the spirit of glory in us so that these aren't empty hopes or empty promises. They are true. They are real. We thank you. Amen.